Good morning. Good morning. A smaller group this morning. It's snowed, and uh, a lot of people are coming to sit for the Rahatsu for a day or two days or three days or a whole week. So we are the second string. <laughs> but the second string is also the first string because the string includes all life within it. <laughs> so cool, wonderful that we're here. Uh, 41 people online. Hi, 41 people online. <clears throat> so this morning I'm going to talk about uh, two Zen poets, one who knew he was a Zen poet, one who didn't know she was a Zen poet. And the first is Han Chan, who lived in the 9th century, and he definitely knew he was a Zen poet. And the second is Mary Oliver, who died in 2019, and she didn't know she was a Zen poet, but she was. <laughs> she was. And I've talked about, I haven't talked about Han Chan in a few years, but I've talked two or three times about Mary Oliver lately. But these poems I'm talking about today, I don't think I've talked about these very much, maybe a little bit. Anyway, Han Shan, 9th century, um, uh, China, uh, uh, golden age of Chinese Chan, Chinese Zen, uh, considered a reincarnation of Manjusri Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva of wisdom. Um, uh, he lives in a remote region, rocks all around, uh, and he's, he's pictured, if those of you guys who've seen a lot of Chinese art, especially Chinese Buddhist art, he's pictured with Shite, his buddy, at the foot of the mountain, cavorting. And often they're outside the mount monastery, cavorting. And, uh, and he care, Kanshan carries, I don't know if they have this stuff at Mia, but it's all over the place. Uh, he carries a blank scroll with nothing on it. <laughs> indicating that we got all these words, but deeper than words, there's a vast spaciousness. <laughs> and Shite carries a broom, and they're kind of like clowns. They have big hair, <laughs> and they're like, they laugh a lot, and the, the monks are not particularly happy with them, according to the myth, according, because they hang outside the monastery. Of course, we, we just assume that Hanshan has spent a lot of years in the monastery before he before this. Anyway, uh, uh, and Mary Oliver, who uh, won the National Book Award, uh, the Pulitzer Prize, and she's inspired by nature. Hanshan has a really robust sitting practice. We can tell he's always talking about it. She never mentions meditation, but she mentions walking in nature. Every day she walks in nature. Every day. And uh, uh, she has a uh, it seems to be her practice. Uh, it's really, a, she does it solitarily, and uh, it does it with some, it's a, it's a passion for her to do that. And this reminds me of the old Chan's masters too, because there were the monasteries uh, in China, and, and in Japan, but particularly in China, and the, the monks and nuns would walk from one monastery to another carrying a staff. Sometimes they'd have to walk 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 miles. Uh, I don't know how 
many of you were at the shoe solo ceremony that we just did, but the staff goes way back to the beginning of Chan, the, the, the pilgrim with the staff. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to talk about their similarities and a little bit about their differences, a little bit. <clears throat> so uh, uh, their similarities interconnectedness of all life. I'll talk about that. Call to release the chatter, including our negative self-talk. But even our positive self-talk. Our positive self-talk is good to a degree, but we, <laughs> we do it to try to get away from our negative self-talk. But we don't need much of self-talk at all to get along and to be happy. And we don't, certainly don't need this calcified negative self-talk. Anyway, that's one of the things that they talk about, they help us release it, uh, they help us uh, love the ordinary by pointing the ordinary out, and the camaraderie with nature, that's just so natural for them. Deep camaraderie with nature. And uh, fifth, they have an enduring sense, in their poetry at least, I don't know about their daily life, of good spirits. Even when things are going poorly, good spirits. And finally, just a simple joy in being part of a vast whole. So I'll talk about each of those for five minutes or so. With examples. <clears throat> so starting with Han Chan. Everyone has their connection to the Tao. Only the foolish and learned argue about it. So the Tao. The Tao uh, so remember that Chan comes from the amalgamation of Taoism and Buddhism. And the Tao is considered the valley of the universe from which all life comes and to which all life returns. So the interconnectedness is in that valley, in that spacious valley. Um, so uh, he says, everyone has their connection to the Tao. Only the foolish and the, and the learned argue about it. <laughs> Only the foolish and the learned argue. Sometimes the learned are the foolish, in case you haven't noticed. <laughs> Human, animal, plant, uh, snakes, snails, puppy dogs, tails, <laughs> all emanate from the valley of, the valley of, of fecundity, fecundity, stillness. Prajnaparamita in Buddhism, the mother of all life, the mother of all life. So here is Mary Oliver talking about this in her own way. You do not have, oh, I've talked about this last time, but I can talk about this lots of times. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You don't have to do that stuff. You don't have to do that stuff. You can let go of your sense of burden of, and feel that part of something big, something huge, which you can't define. You don't want to define it. It's too wonderful. You can define it, but, it's, but then include its opposite. <laughs> include its opposite. <laughs> you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. Let go of that self-judgment and the expectations that society and our parents 
kind of inflict on us. They don't think they're inflicting on, on us, but they are. They're, they're boxing us in, so we can't, we don't experience this natural connectedness, this natural joy. So, we don't have to be good in a conventional sense because already we're good for manifestation of, of the Tao. <laughs> we're just as we are. <clears throat> Even the snake snails and puppy dogs' tails. That's from my childhood Mother Goose poem. You guys maybe are too, too young to know about Mother Goose. How many of you know about Mother Goose? Oh, people still do not. Oh, people still do Mother Goose. Okay, <laughs> cool. Well, I I tried reading Mother Goose to my grandsons, and they just wanted to go online. <laughs> yeah, Grandpa, we'll listen to one of these, but. <laughs> Okay, that's the first one. Connection, connectedness, support. Before we divide things up, we have this support. It's here. It's always here. It's always here. Second one, letting go of incessant chatter, including negative self-talk. Letting go of that stuff. Here's uh, Hanshan. Laugh at all the idle chatter of those who seem to possess something. We're always wanting to possess something. We have some concern, a burden that we do possess, and then we want to possess a material thing to deal with the pain of this burden. <laughs> but uh, material things are wonderful. I just got a new car, and <laughs> but I didn't get. I waited for. 20 years to get a new car. But I told my daughter, it's time for you to buy a new car. And she said, okay, Deb, this is your last car. Ooh, she's been kind of a bossy. <laughs> I said, well, Aaron, maybe my next last car, because I'm going to drive till I'm 99. And she just frowned. <laughs> but I was teasing her. <laughs> Laugh at all the idle chatter of those who seem to possess something. Then in another poem he says, this is, this is, this is his Cold Mountain series of poems, uh, translated by Red Pine. Red Pine is a wonderful translator. We had Red Pine here. Uh, I brought him here maybe 15 years ago. He's really, he's a good translator and a good, uh, and he's, he's spent, he spent years in China. Every year he went to China for many years. So he's got a sense of it of both the Taoist and the, and the Buddhism in China. Anyway, I laugh when I hear the fish in the water is thirsty. <laughs> I laugh when I see people practicing in one monastery after the other, carrying their mind baggage with them. <clears throat> and here's, here's Mary Oliver. <clears throat> She's also letting go of chatter. In the, but she's more compassionate, more forgiving. That's just her style. She's more, she, it's more, it's a gentle, softer. In the journey. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. <laughs> One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices kept shouting their bad advice. 
so this, despite these internal and external pressures, we can follow what's, what we care about, what we deeply care about. And if we don't know what it is, we just spend a little time in nature, a little time meditating. That there's something here, there's something here. It's not a thing, no. <laughs> it's not a thing. One day you finally know, knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Negative self-talk, negative self-talk. So I began ordaining people as priests here, I don't know how many years ago, uh, probably 18, 19 years ago. I probably have ordained 15 or 18 priests. I don't know exactly, some of them just fell away like leaves falling away in a tree in the fog, it gets too cold, Rahatz is coming up, I'm out of here, <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> 18 days, you've got to be kidding, Tim. And this is how much, I, I always told people they should do 18 days of retreat, <laughs> and it comes time for Rahatz when they start. This is what used to happen. I'm, 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 I've been retired now from being guiding teacher for what, three or four years. Anyway, uh, what I noticed with people I ordained is that once they started being candid with me, their negative self-talk was, was louder and more persistent than before because they were trying to measure up. Of course we want to measure up, but we need to gently, we, because we already measure up. We don't need the measuring stick already. The measuring stick comes later, that's conventional reality. Ultimate reality, you measure up just as you are. <laughs> but I noticed so many of the people I ordained, I thought, oh, geez, they're having a worse time than before, to the, thinking they're not measuring up and giving themselves bad advice. <laughs> Do they have regrets they did this? And then, of course, well, maybe four or five of them fell away out of 18. I, I'm just, I don't know about these numbers, something like that. Or maybe 20, maybe four or five fell away. But sometimes the leaves fall. That's cool. Sometimes the leaves stay on the trees all the way through winter, <laughs> and then spring comes. <laughs> I grew up in a part of California where the trees mostly just stay on all winter. <laughs> stay on. So the third one is love for the ordinary. It's the ordinary. Just the ordinary. Just the simple. Just the everyday. Here's Hanshan. I simply pick leaves and arrange them in, into a bowl. Then I sit down beside them. <laughs> That's one of the, a whole poem of his. <laughs> I simply put, pick leaves and arrange them into a bowl. Then I sit down beside them. Hmm. That's all we need. We don't need much, but but simplicity, simplicity, love for the ordinary. Katagiri Roshi, the founding teacher here, used to talk to us about unnecessary toys. Why did we have to have all these toys? He was talking about it literally and figuratively. <laughs> Everybody was wanted a different technique for meditation. He said, oh, those are just toys. And then he said, they're all your fancy cars, too. Those are just toys, too. He said, toys are fine, but, but don't get hypnotized. By them. But we do get hypnotized because we're, we're in pain. So Mary Oliver, love for the ordinary. 
why I wake early. <clears throat> Hello, sun in my face. Hello, you who made the morning and spread it over the fields and into the faces of the tulips and the nodding morning glories and into the windows of even the miserable and the crotchety. <laughs> Hello, sun in my face. Hello, you who made the morning and spread it over the fields and into the faces of the tulips and the nodding morning glories and into the windows of even the miserable and the crotchety. <laughs> the sacred in the everyday. Just that even when someone's crotchety, they're alive. And if you just help them just be with their crotchety, crotchetiness, recognize and accept it, your own crotchetiness, recognize it, it too falls away. It too falls away. And so the, uh, I used to tell the story all the time about uh, the first, the fifth emperor visiting, emperor of northern China visiting Bodhidharma. And I won't go, I won't tell the whole story. Uh, so at some point, uh, the emperor has been building uh, temples all around northern China with, with meditation halls. So he's, anxious to get the approval of the, of the, of the, the true man, Bodhidharma, who was brought Zen from India to China. If you go into my office, you'll see a very uh, warm, comforting picture of Bodhidharma on the wall. <laughs> More like Hansha, not so warm and comforting. <laughs> oh, sometimes we want warm and comfort, sometimes we don't. We can incorporate both those. Uh, so, uh, uh, oh, I'm telling the Bodhidharma story, so I'm just telling a little bit of it. Um, uh, the emperor was just nonplussed when Bodhidharma tells him he's got no good merit for all he's done. He's nonplussed. And he says, because he's been, in Buddhism, you know, it's a big deal to build up good merit, in case you don't know that. You do good things, you build up good merit. And then most Buddhists believe in reincarnation. So in the next life, you won't be born as a, as a puppy dog's tail. You'll be born as something else, like great bodhisattva. So even though Buddha was kind of silent about reincarnation, most Buddhists believe in it. And my teacher was, this is what my teacher said about it. He said, some of the people I really respect believe in it. That was pretty good. <laughs> we don't know. How do we know? It's presumptuous. Anyway, I'm not getting into that. <laughs> uh, uh, so, what? So then, the the uh, fifth emperor of northern China is nonplussed, and he says, uh, "Well, then, what is the first principle of your holy teaching?" And Bodhidharma says, "A vast spaciousness with nothing holy about it." which, not coincidentally, is the title of my first book, A Vast Spaciousness with Nothing Holy About It. Within this vast spaciousness, there's nothing that's not sacred, because it's coming from the valley of the universe that's always supporting us, always, always supporting us, nothing. So nothing holy about it means everything holy. Of course it does, because we're whole. We're part of a vast tapestry of life. It's whole. So every p 
peace in that tapestry is holy. <laughs> Although as soon as we grab on something holy, then it, it dies. We kill it. We kill it. But it doesn't die. <laughs> Nothing dies. Everything's just changing all the time. <laughs> Okay, the fourth one is camaraderie with nature. And here's uh, Anshan in his solitary communion. Ten years of chopping wood, I sat in the hut by the brazier. The wood smoke drifts through the evening, most of it returns to the trees. Ten years of chopping wood, I sat in the hut by the brazier. This is up the top of Cold Mountain, although I don't think he lives at the tippy top, I don't know. The wood smoke drifts through the evening, most of it returns to the trees. There's another one by him. White rocks jutting out everywhere, inside the pines, the sound of the bell. So when we're really still inside, is it the sound of the bell or the sound of the pines? There's, we don't know, we don't divide it up. It's wonderful, but we don't divide it up, it's undivided. Sound of the pines is the is the fragrance of the bell, the pine smell of the bell. Oh, multi-sensory, multi-sensory. <laughs> we can experience this anytime, anytime, any place. Not rocket science. Not rocket science. <laughs> rocket science is cool, but it's not rocket science. <laughs> Um, so, uh, 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 here he is again. I settle by the cliffs, gaze into endless space, and feel the hum of the mountain rub off on me. Sitting alone, the bamboo grove keeps me company. I gaze upon the stream, the water sparkles green. Wonderful. Let's read it again. I settle by the cliffs, gaze into endless space, a vast spaciousness with nothing holy about it, and feel the hum of the mountain rub off on me. Sitting alone, the bamboo grove keeps me company. I gaze upon the stream, the water sparkles green. And that, the other side of him, is his cavorting laughter when he's down at the bottom of the mountain and he's got his blank his blank sutra he's showing everybody. When the monks come by, he shows them, he says, do you know this? <laughs> you should memorize it. <laughs> and then he laughs. <laughs> Can you memorize this? <laughs> Can you? Can you memorize it? <laughs> it's in you already. Everything comes from it. Everything is a manifestation of it. Everything returns to it. So I think it was a couple of talks ago I gave, I talked about uh, my experience bringing a beehive from northern Minnesota. How many heard me give that talk in the room? One, two, how many online? Oh, I don't see the people online, I can't say. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to tell that story again. So when I was, when I lived it, when we moved down here from northern Minnesota, because the Zen Center was buying this building, 
uh, I, I brought my beehive into the neighborhood. This is many, many years ago. And uh, the second morning, the, the hive had come alive, and the bees were coming and going busily looking for pollen. I was happy because I brought them the whole way from two harbors, bump, 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 and I closed the hive up, and I was glad they were they had so much vitality. So I was happy to see them. <laughs> and then on, on the first Saturday, or maybe the second Saturday was there, uh, they were there, I don't know, I did, uh, after Zazen, uh, meditation happens in the morning on Saturdays. It's a long one. We've been doing this for years. Uh, it's a long, and it happens later. So uh, it means that the bees are already up. <laughs> Early morning, Zazen, the bees aren't that stupid. <laughs> you know, they're going to stay inside till it gets warmer. <laughs> so on a Saturday, <laughs> on a Saturday, um, just move close to the hive. I, I had been practicing my meditation and I was kind of, I guess, crazed in my stillness, in my openness. I thought, oh, the bees, I'll just hang out over by the bees. <laughs> so I did it without any protective equipment on. I brought my, all my protective equipment from two harbors and I stayed two or three feet away and I stayed still and I breathed and they began circling. First one bee, then two bees, then a whole bunch, about an inch from me. Well, I knew I had I knew enough about Zazen to stay still. <laughs> I knew about mosquitoes in the backyard here <laughs> to stay still. So I just stayed still. And they just and at first I a little bit like this, but then I like this. I always opened up and I enjoyed it. And they didn't touch me. Uh, and they moved so fast. Um, they seem like a dust swirl, uh, but as I looked closely, I saw each one, each individual bee, with slightly different dark to light striations um, uh, of, that have that golden yellow color, you know, and uh, brown bands on their bodies. Each was different, and yet together they were one golden brown flow. That's that's wonderful, isn't it? That's wonderful, isn't it? That's camaraderie with nature. <laughs> so here's Mary Oliver on camaraderie with nature. Oh, I didn't get stung either. I did get stung, but not, not whenever I did that practice, I didn't get stung. That was my practice, you know, whatever practice means. Practice and just being present, just being present. Not trying to get anything or be anywhere, just being present. <clears throat> uh, so here's Mary Oliver, camaraderie with nature. Uh, this is her poem, Morning at Great Pond. Just as the sun was rising, we left the house and saw the goldfinches happily at the thistles or the rose hips in the red bodies of the bushes, the thistles that hot pink flower, beautiful even then, in the half-darkness, together with the cold grass of the thistles, the hot pink of the flower, the white stitchery of the waterfall, the sheets of the waterfall, the big godly rocks, and the lettuce green of the water, and the leaves, the floating leaves, 
never still, always changing, multi-sensory encounter. She opens up all her senses. The touch of the thistles, the sound of the waterfall, the movement of the leaves. This is what Fritz Perls called losing our mind and coming to our senses. We need a mind, but we can actually lose it. We don't need it that much and just come to our senses. We can do that anytime. anytime. Here she is in Blackwater Woods. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things, Mary Oliver says. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, let it go. Birth, death, birth, death, birth, death. The fifth one, continuous good spirits. Continuous good spirits. Now, I also did uh, Whitman once before. Whitman, uh, or maybe twice before, I did a whole class on Whitman. Whitman and Mary Oliver and Hanshan really go well together. But I'm not, but he's, he's also, his poems are in, he's in continual good spirits. Uh, anyway, uh, 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 Hanshan's sense of good spirits, he's playful. And here's a scene where he goes through a town that's in ruins riding his horse, in ruins. There's been some kind of an earthquake or flood and it's just in ruins. And he says, I spur, I spur my horse through the wrecked town. The wrecked town sinks my horse. I was going to see, say more about the wrecked town, but the black ink rubs off my brush. <laughs> so he's, you know, so he's, you know, he's seeing the wrecked town, he's feeling sad, but he's also whimsical. I can't even write anymore about it because the, the, my brush is drying up. So he's being whimsical and kind of detached in his whimsy. Whenever we're whimsical, we're not caught by stuff. Even if it's a hardship. So uh, uh, my, my uh, Kadiguri Roshi, who is the founder here, used to talk about after World War II and that would have been the mid-1950s, that's 10 years after. You'd think they would have recovered, but you know, they, geez, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, how could they recover? I mean, they were, the monks were hungry at Aheji, at the monastery, and he was the assistant Tenzo. So his job, the Tenzo told him, that's the, the head cook and the assistant cook, Tenzo told him to, they, didn't have enough, they didn't have enough rice for the monks. And that they have three balls, so you have to put something in every ball. So he told uh, Katagiri Roshi, my teacher, to go out and cut weeds. Katagiri knew nothing about nat nature or about. He just went out and cut weeds, and they brought them back and put them in a big, big pot and served weed soup in the second bowl. No, actually, they served it in the first bowl. He said because they didn't have enough rice. <laughs> they just they put the rice in the second bowl because they only had a little bit for those of you who have done karaoke here. And, he, and he, was, he was laughing the whole time he was doing this. He said, that wheat soup tastes good. <laughs> said, tastes good. Not toy, tastes good. <laughs> Still putting us down about our toys, right? Always digging at us. But in a, in a fun way, in a friendly way. <laughs>
And then my first teacher, Suzuki Roshi, who came uh, to San Francisco earlier, quite a bit earlier, 10 years, let's see, yeah, 10 years before Katagiri did, uh, uh, so he also really suffered during the World War and its aftermath, and so he also didn't have enough food. So once in San Francisco, but we lived in San Francisco, it was food, abundant food, and he had a Japanese congregation supporting him. We didn't support him, but the Japanese people all did. What are we, we were freeloaders. <laughs> it never occurred to us that he, I don't I want to go into that. <laughs> so um, I met him on the street once. I think this is one of my books, maybe my first book, or my second book. Um, I went him on the street and he said, uh, fresh vegetables. He had a big bag. And I looked into it and they looked really fresh and nice. And he said, only three days old. So he had been dumpster diving. He had been dumpster diving down at Safeway. <laughs> and as soon as he said, only three days old, all of a sudden the vegetables didn't look that good to me. <laughs> you know, they looked great. He said, fresh. I looked at him. Only three days old. He said, would you like to come over for dinner for soup? I said, no, thank you. <laughs> I rushed off. <laughs> but for him, for him, continual good spirits, because he, he knew how to sink into this, this valley of the universe that we're always an emanation of. Whether we feel distraught or despondent or happy, we're an emanation of that. So here is Mary Oliver talking about camaraderie with nature. <clears throat> oh no, no, she's talking about, excuse me, she's talking about continual good spirits. Continual good spirits. She's talking about bad things happening, bad things happening. And then she's saying, meanwhile the world goes on. Meanwhile the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, meanwhile, we're not doing too good as a culture. The whole world's not doing too good. Gaza, Israel, climate change, Trump, ugh, on and on and on. But we had fresh snow this morning. Fresh snow covers everything. Did you notice? Nothing gets left out. <laughs> Nothing gets left out. That's your spirit, the spirit. Below you're dividing things up into should've and should not have and might have and could have and rehearsing and regretting and rehearsing and regretting. Deeper than that, deeper than that, right here. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clearer pebbles of rain are moving across the landscapes over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. And then on a summer day, she says, I think I talked about this last time or the time before, I don't exactly know what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down into the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Ah, <laughs> You, you feel her Zen? Can you feel her Zen? <laughs> and she never mentioned Zen. She probably never heard about Zen. That's better. Because as soon as we get into Zen, we 
codify things, we stultify things. <clears throat> but we need to codify, we need to stultify sometimes, we need to codify. We need to feel that we're on a path, go somewhere, even though we don't know where. It does, it goes somewhere deep, deep, not somewhere out there, just somewhere in here. Okay, the last one. The joy of being part of a vast, inclusive whole. Here is Hanshan. I pick leaves to thatch a, a hut among the pines. The world of men seems thousands of miles away. So here's, here he's got a shelter up on Cold Mountain, distancing himself from the complexities of the Imperial Court and the monastery, and just feeling the wonderful connectedness, the joy of simplicity in just the natural world, the natural world. So after I did that first uh, experiment with the bees, I went back three or four times, always on a Saturday morning, because I wanted to be pre pretty empty. <laughs> and if I freaked out, just be able to breathe. But I didn't freak out, I just breathed and it was wonderful. And I thought, boy, this is going to be a wonderful practice for me. And then you know what happened? I got a, somebody made a complaint to the city, and I got a citation. And I was going to have to pay a hundred bucks if I didn't get rid of those bees within, I think I had eight days to get rid of the bees. They were a public nuisance. <laughs> this is back a long time ago. So I found a place to take them on, somewhere outside the city, and I packed them up and, and took them up to somewhere who took care of them, I, I think. Somebody who had hives already. Somebody who had hives. So Han Chan, talking about being part of a vast, inclusive whole. Second poem. Let my mind wander idle where it will. In the empty hills I'll sit serene and still. Let my mind wander where it will, in the empty hills I'll sit serene and still. And here is Mary Oliver's contrast because she's encompassing human relationships in her, in her vast inclusive whole. And also human despair, there she is. Tell me about your despair, yours, and I'll tell you mine. And then she says, meanwhile the world goes on but then she comes back again. And she, well, I'll do the whole thing. Tell me about your despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Tell me about your despair, yours, and I'll tell you mine. You see how they go together? We want to kick our despair out, but our despair is part of being human. Don't kick it off. You don't need to kick anything out. You're part of this wonderful hole. Uh, then she says in her poem, When Death Comes, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering, what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering. She died in 2019. This is one of her later poems. 
What is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? Life, death, hold, release. Life, death, hold, release. Life, death, hold, release. <laughs> hold, release, <laughs> right? <laughs> so she's gentle and nurturing, more so than, than Hancho. She emphasizes self-love and, and belief in inherent goodness. Hanshan <laughs> does, but he, doesn't, he never mentions goodness or inherent goodness. He talks about emptiness, the vast emptiness. Well, that's goodness. <laughs> that's goodness. Uh, Hanshan's more rugged. He's more ascetic. He's stark. Emptying your mind so you can feel full. Empty your mind. In the empty hills, I'll sit serene and still. Now, Han Shan, don't keep looking at the waves on the water. Move the boat so he's more direct. Don't keep looking at the waves of your mind. Move the boat. Do something. Don't get caught on this fixation. Do something. Don't keep looking at the waves on the water. Move the boat. Breaking three from the trance of our chattery mind and all the waves that we get hypnotized by. On the other hand, Mary Oliver is more tender. She's more tender. She says, whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. Announcing your place, your place, my place in the family of things. <clears throat> so both of them are emanations, from my point of view, of Manjusri, the Bodhisattva of wisdom. Um, wisdom that's beyond the, the conventional time sense, beyond any cultural boundaries. All of this ruckus, all of this pain, between in the Middle East and so many other places, and even within our cultures, because we get stuck on we feel people who don't share our culture or orientation are going to hurt us. They're going to hurt us. <clears throat> but this deep wisdom is beyond that. Both invite us, both Oliver and Hanchen invite us to reflect on the beauty of, of just being and the snow that's covering everything. <laughs> A vast spaciousness with nothing holy about it. Oh, and with Bodhidharma. Why not? A vast spaciousness with nothing holy about it. We don't know what happened to the emperor after that. <laughs> he was probably not a happy camper. <laughs> and we don't, we, this probably never even happened. It's probably just told myth. <clears throat> Made up by some creative storytellers <laughs> in, the, in the ninth century, in the eighth century. <laughs> Probably not made out of whole cloth. I never make anything I say out of whole cloth, but I, you know, I extemporaneously say stuff. That's part of Zen, to be alive where we are. So that's what I want to say, and I have a little bit of time for comments or questions from people in the room, or people online. It's always good to start with people online because they tend to feel left out. I don't know if you guys feel left out. Maybe they feel safer at home. They didn't have to get out and slip around. And they can stay cozy all day. Anyway, people online, 
Tim? 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 Yes. It's Ellen. Ellen? Can you, can you hear me? I can hear you, Ellen. Yes. Um, um, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know, know Mary, Mary Oliver really uh, well. Getting, getting an, an echo, echo back. back. There, there is, is a poem called, called The Buddha's, the Buddha's Last, Last Instructions. instructions. Yes. Um, can you, okay. Uh, she does have a poem called The Buddha's Last Instructions. Go ahead. Um, and it begins, make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the East begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet even green and it goes on but i i don't know what her familiarity with buddhism was but i just wanted to mention that one poem it's from house of light well i don't even know that poem thank you though she may not have known about zen but she knew about buddhism thank you ellen wow sure. thank you I know about that too bad i thought she you know this just kind of came from her but it still comes from us we need help tapping into it and, and she got help by reading some Buddhist stuff. That's cool. That's why we have all these scriptures. That's why when I teach, I just don't. I just don't do this. Because does that encourage you? Do you feel encouraged when I do this? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Thank you, Ella. Other people online. Well, I'll let the people online get get their juices going and ask folks in the room. Anybody in the room want to say anything or ask anything? Well, I'll open it up to both people in the room and online. I have a comment. Sure. Well, that's, that's Katie. Hi, Katie. Hi. Um, the, the poem about uh, mortality and having to love something mortal and then let it go yes. reminds me so much of pet ownership. Where oh, you, pet ownership. Oh, yes, yes. You make a conscious choice to love this thing deeply that you know is only going to live 10 years or so. Yes. Boy, talk about sadness and grief. Yeah. But we do make that choice. That's a choice to live in the world, to be in the world, to be with something that brings us pleasure, some being, even though they're, they're going to be gone before we know it. No, thank you. Thank you. Many of you heard me say this, but I'm still grieving the death of my dog Freckles when I was in the fifth grade. Oh, really? I'm still, I'm still grieving it. I still miss Freckles. She was my best friend. She she never criticized me. She never compared me. She was the Bodhisattva beyond compare. You guys are good, but Freckles is the best. And so that's why I miss her so much. Fifth grade. Fifth grade. Other people in the room or online. Yeah. Did your bees thrive in their new home? I know it's sometimes difficult to merge. I never, I don't know. 
I don't know. I know that the guy that I brought them to had several hives and he was optimistic. Are you a beekeeper? No. Oh. No, I was just curious. I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm for the moment trying to put myself in the position of that of that community of bees having oh. been transferred from the north. Yes. And they became uh, How disorienting it must have been to them. Yeah. They didn't even get to stay where I, you know, I, I'm, you know, I had the hive all protected warmth. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But you know now, you know what the the law is like now in the city of Minneapolis. You can have all the bee beehives you want. You can have chickens. Back then, you couldn't have chickens or, or bees. Now you can have all the bees and all the chickens you want. Even if the neighbors complain, the neighbor, the next door neighbor was very upset about the bees. I know she's the one who called. <laughs> she didn't tell me she called. She was freaked out. But that's a long time ago. Now, now we're now we're including bees and chickens in our in our family here in Minneapolis. That's pretty wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. Russo, could you just re? Would you mind rereading? Um, the Han Shan poem about letting his mind wander. I'd like to hear that one more time. Oh, okay. Let me see if I can find it. <laughs> hmm. uh, let my mind wander idle where it will. In the empty hills, I'll sit serene and still. So he's not, he, he's a, an early uh, advocacy of what we call shikantaza. You just let the thoughts pass through rather than using a technique to try to do something. Let my mind wander where it will. Just letting it wander. You know, this is my teacher's, one of my teachers about teach about, taught about shikantaza. He said, if you want to give your sheep or cows, uh, if you want, let's see, if you give your sheep or cows a large pasture, they will come home. <laughs> they will come home. If you want to tame your sheep or cows, give them a large cash. So that I think Han Chan is in that spirit, or Suzuki was in that spirit of Han Chan. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I feel like the men mentioning of him settling in the hills. I feel like I feel like he's not talking about those hills over there. Ah, I feel like they're yeah somewhere else. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I think it's good to think of all of these metaphorically, literally and metaphorically both. Uh, Barbara. Um, when you talk about that swarm of bees around you, yeah. and how you remain calm in the face of fear, uh-huh. I just want to ask you where you went with that. What was where I went what with you that. need to do that? Uh, and say more about that. I don't quite get what you're asking. When you have a storm of fear, yeah, like the bees around yeah. you, how do you get through that fear? Yeah, well, this direct way is to recognize it, accept it, and breathe, and recognize it. And then there's another fear that comes up. You recognize it, you accept it, you breathe. You and yet another fear. So there's one swarm and then another swarm. They're swarming in, but I recognize them. 
I accept it, I release, I breathe. And after a while, this becomes natural. You just can do this. It just happens naturally, but it takes a lot of practice. When you go deeper, mm -hmm. would you say that you have a sense of trust? Yes, there's trust, but it's not trust that I have. It's just some sense of, I don't know, don't get, I, I use the word intimacy because I don't know of a better word. Intimacy. I, I felt like intimate. How can you be intimate with bees? But a sense of intimacy and joy coming from that intimacy. So I think that's trust, but it's not trust in something. Whatever we trust in is going to let us down, in case you haven't noticed, whatever being or, <laughs> or vehicle or <laughs> don't let us down. But, the, but you know, if we trust in this deep valley in which we're all connected, but not a concept, we just feel it. Concept helps us. Sure. Uh, yeah. what, what you just said about whatever you trust in is going to let me down. Pardon? What, what you just said about whatever you trust in is going to let you down. Yeah. That that is really profound, and, and that is that is I think deeply true. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that just really kind of struck me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and and. and and the contrast between trust and intimacy, how they're, they're related, but, but intimacy is, it, 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 intimacy is related to trust, but you can be intimate and have trust knowing that what you're intimate with will let you down. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. All right, good. Did you guys hear what he said? Oh, good. Thank you. Uh, let's see. Uh, I think there would be time for one more. So I'll sit quietly for a minute. And if there are no more, then I'll turn it on, turn it over to Dr. Dawn. Hi. Yeah, I had uh, something that I wanted to talk about. Sure, Paul. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. I, you know, speaking of uh, everything you trust, you know, letting you down, you know, I feel that a lot of times I'm often feeling like I have to assume the worst, even when, you know, I try to try to positive self, my self talk myself into not assuming the worst. For instance, I'm actually uh, going on a vacation soon, but, you know, I have to admit that I didn't do a lot of uh, research and planning beforehand, you know, just to make sure that I had everything set before I leave. Well, that's natural, right? Planning is good. We need to plan. Um, planning is good. It's just when we get obsessed with our plan, we get obsessed with, am I doing this exactly right? And what if this happens, then that happens? And then our plan becomes so rigid that we, only live in our plan. We don't live in our vacation. <laughs> Any of you ever had that experience? <laughs> Several times. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't know, but I don't know if I dealt dealt with what you wanted me to talk about, Paul. I mean, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to ask is. I guess what I'm trying to ask is how do I how do I avoid well maybe not so much avoid assuming the worst but how do I how do I live with you know assuming well, how do I counter this all, you recognize your negative self-talk you recognize it a lot of people are so hypnotized with the negative self-talk they don't recognize you have to recognize it in this moment the moment it's coming up, then you have to recognize it and then and then open up to it and know. And when you open up to it without indulging it or repressing it, it doesn't redundantly say the same thing over and over again. And if it does, then my teaching is to discover what the negative mantra is and replace it with a positive one. If it's saying, I can never do this. Everything is just screwed up. Everything's screwed up. I'm screwed up. Then you find a positive mantra that you can, that you, you don't get rid of the negative, but you find a positive one. Uh, and I talk about that in my Dharma talk sometimes. So those are the two recognize, accept, and, but you have to notice, accept. And then if it's just going to be redundantly dominating everything, then notice. Write down what the negative mantra is saying and replace it with a positive one. Something like that. That's what I teach. Does that make sense, Paul? That makes perfect sense. Thank you very much, Tim. Okay, I'm going to turn it over. Uh, oh, well, okay. One more and then Joel. So, is trust elevating vulnerability to a level that shouldn't be and intimacy is just dwelling in the vulnerability because you have to trust you place trust in the bees that they wouldn't sting you but then the intimacy of just being with the bees is where the vulnerability is rewarded by getting the outcome you that's desire that's right that's right thank you but they might have stung me yeah, so I could have been stung. Sometimes we fall down. Sometimes we do stupid things. This turned out to be such a wonderful thing that I get to give six Dharma talks about. <laughs> but what if they'd all stung me? <laughs> you know, I don't think I would have given a Dharma talk about it. So sometimes we fall down. Sometimes we fall down. But, but trust is elevating something to a level where it's going to fall even Yeah. But yeah. that's the vulnerability. No, that's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. To be human is to be vulnerable. Mary Oliver is really good about this. Hanshan, not quite so good. Uh, he's good, but he, he doesn't talk about it this way. She, she does. Of course, you know, uh, male and female, male and female. Both principles coming from the valley of the universe. Hanshans and Mary Oliver's. Okay, thank you for all for uh, being here today, and I'm going to turn it over to Joe.